Welcome to Black White. But mostly gray, because life is not always neat and tidy. We live our lives in a million shades of gray, where the lines between right and wrong are blurred by our personal vision of reality. If we take the time to look beyond the labels, we understand that most things are complex and nuanced. Not every situation is good or bad. Not everything is right or wrong. There are many gray areas in life, and that's what we want to explore. So open your minds and join us. Hey everyone, welcome to our season one finale Aliki, it's hard to believe how far we've come since that very first episode. Yeah, right? We've laughed, we've learned, and we've covered a spectrum of topics that we hope resonate with you, or at least make you stop and think. Today, we're excited to have our first guest on the show. Our music maestro, Kalanji Kadima, will join us and share his journey and his thoughts on the music industry. Then we'll wrap up a few loose ends from prior episodes. But first, let me give a plug for our website, butmostlygray.com. You can find a guide with all of our episodes in a section that provides a little more information about the show and the hosts. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. It's butmostlygray. All right. Well, we've heard from a number of our listeners that they'd like to know a little bit more about us, Aliki. My story's fairly simple. I grew up with eight sisters and two brothers in a small town in southern Wisconsin. We were like the Waltons, only like Irish Bohemian. My dad, (laughs) yeah, my dad was a newspaper man, died when I was seven, good guy. My mom was a saint. I had a pretty normal and happy childhood. Aliki, you, on the other hand, had quite the journey. Some might say an incredible journey. Now, you were born in Uganda during the waning days of the Idi Amin regime, correct? Yes, correct. Uh, I was born during the tail end of Idi Amin's reign. In fact, when Kampala fell in 1979, my family fled the capital uh, for our ancestral village of Yumbe. Uh, During that time, you know, that's when, you know, the soldiers from the invading, or I guess the regime that was coming in to replace Idi Amin, they began purging civil servants, you know, the educated and so forth. I, I guess that's just kind of how things worked back then. My dad, being a, a young civil servant at the time, uh, who also hailed from the same region as, as Idi Amin, was a mocked man because of that. He was accused of being a loyalist. You know, he ended up basically escaping to the United States. He survived, really, this whole ordeal because he came to the United States as a foreign exchange student when he was 15 years old, and he made that connection, right? Yes. Back in 1965, he was elected uh, by his classmates to to come study uh, in the United States, and he ended up living with a family in New Berlin, Wisconsin, the Conley family. So he kept in touch with them all those years. 
so when all this stuff happened, they, they were keeping an eye on him and were able to kind of they were able to get him here uh, using a student visa. And so he uh, ended up going back to school at UW Milwaukee as a foreign exchange student. We'll come back to Adiga in a little bit. So he left, and you were left in Uganda with your mother. And how many sisters were living with you at the time? I had my two sisters, my two older sisters, with me. And you were just a baby, right? Yes, I was. I was uh, almost a year old when this was all happening. And you got kidnapped. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so when we were hiding out there in the village, the soldiers came looking for my dad. When they were told he was not there, they, of course, they didn't believe it. They kidnapped me in, in hopes of uh, uh, having him come out of hiding. But uh, that, you know, when he, he, he didn't show up, my grandfather and, you know, other people, other males from the family ended up going to the barracks, nearby barracks, to, to beg for my release. I was there, you know, playing with the soldiers in biscuits, <laughs> as my mom likes it, uh, to tell the story. But yeah, I survived. Uh, nothing bad happened to me. <laughs> yeah, other than, you know, being kidnapped at, as a uh, yes. one-year-old baby. Exactly. So you went back to your mom. Then you and your mom uh, went to a refugee camp in South Sudan. And your sisters, who were a little older, were sent to live with other relatives, right? You know, my mom was basically kind of left there, if you can imagine, a 19-year-old girl with three young kids with no means. You know, those who had, you know, their husbands or whatever, they're able to, you know, secure transportation and everything. My mom didn't. And uh, luckily for us, one of my grandmothers through marriage was there. And uh, so the two of them and us, uh, basically, they walked on, they walked on foot from our ancestral village in Yumbe, which is in northern Uganda, uh, they ran with us to Sudan, dodging bullets. And uh, in fact, my mom was even pregnant at the time. She ended up miscarrying during that whole ordeal. And uh, we made it to Sudan, but of course, she couldn't take care of all of us. And so, yeah, Afsa and Jamila, my, my two older sisters, were sent to go live with our aunts uh, in another area. Of Sudan. So you were in that refugee camp in South Sudan for about four years, right? Yes, I was there for four years. You know, the situation was bleak and, you know, we managed to survive somehow. And then you relocated to another refugee camp in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Was that your choice to move to another camp or were you forced to move to another camp? What? Why did you move from South Sudan to uh the Republic of Congo? Well, my mom um, ended up having another child. And so-, so the father of that child? Well, my stepdad. All right, uh, okay. Yeah, she met my stepdad in, in Sudan. In the refugee camp? In the refugee camp, yes. Okay. So, so, yeah, so my sister was born and I just wasn't prepared. Didn't even know, you know, I was going to have a sister until she, <laughs> she, she basically popped up and I was not happy about the whole thing. And uh, likely enough, my grandmother, who actually helped us uh, escape uh, Ancestral Village, ended up relocating to the refugee camp in, 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 in the Dira Congo. And so they had plenty of food there because, you know, it wasn't like the refugee camp in South Sudan. We actually had a family there that had land. So they were living off the land. There was plenty of food. and 
and it was just a lot better. So she sent for me. I went, I was the first one to go there. And then my uh, two older sisters followed, followed me later. You have often described to me your time in the Congo as like one of the best times of your life. Can you kind of explain how living oh in a refugee camp was like one of the best periods of your life? Yeah. Well, you know, I was looking, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I didn't know anything else other than, you know, growing up in a refugee camp, right? So going to the Congo, it wasn't clearly, it wasn't a desert and uh, there are plenty of trees, you know, lots of fruit. There were lots of other kids there. It, it was just kind of like a magical childhood in, in, in that, you know, like would as soon as the sun would be up, me and my aunties, cousins would all be roaming around the jungle, you know. Uh, there was all so much fun to be had. Uh, it didn't feel like a refugee camp to me. Uh, but yeah, those were the best years of my life, even to this day. You know, like when I sit back and I think about my life, then I'm like, I could redo those, you know, two and a half to three years. You'd like <laughs> to redo on that, huh? I could. I could redo that. You know, life was simple and, and there was food, there was security. So, yeah. So then you returned back to Uganda in, in 1986, lived there for six years, I'm assuming with your two older sisters, your younger sister, and your mom. Is that is that right? No. Actually, when we returned to Uganda, my dad's side of the family decided they didn't want us to live with my mom and my other, like my step-siblings. Uh, so we we went to go live with this family, with my grandfather and his wives. You know, there were, there were you know, times within those six years that, you know, I would I would go back and forth, you know, sometimes I, I would miss my mother and run away and go live with my mother for a while. And then I'll come back. So, yeah, it was kind of a back and forth. So I didn't I didn't get to live with my mother much until until after I finished primary school, which is which would be what elementary school here. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then, uh, yeah. So and then that just led to like uh, 1994 when we came here. So you came to Wisconsin in 1994. Well, while all this was going on in Uganda, your dad was kind of setting you up here in the Milwaukee area, right? Yes. My dad, you know, he made ends meet all those years. It took him a while to to finish, you know, to get a completely different degree because he had an agriculture degree coming from Uganda, which, you know, was kind of useless here. So he went back to school, got his chemistry degree, took him a, a lot longer because he basically couldn't afford to pay, you know, for more than one or two classes at a time because he couldn't work off campus. You know, like on campus is barely minimum wage. He was over there chopping onions and tomatoes in the kitchen and had a pepper route, you know, he babysat. He did all he could, but it took him longer than he anticipated. But eventually, you know, he was able to get his degree in chemistry, got a job, you know, and bought us a, a duplex uh, in the hood in Milwaukee. And so that's where we went. Uh, that's where we lived and, and also went to, to high school. So you came to Wisconsin in 1994. You you had been, you know, spending the last six years in, in Uganda going to school. You came here and ended up graduating in three and a half years. How do yes. you, I, I'm trying to figure out, obviously, you, you had a great education in Uganda if you came here and were able to compete and, and earn a scholarship. Oh yeah, that was uh, it was it was actually kind of eye opening. I guess some people, you know, like to say the British education system has an an edge over the American education system. I don't know, 
you know, I finished first grade all the way to seventh grade over there. So then when I came here, went straight to ninth grade. And yeah, so three and a half years, everything felt like a review for me in high school for some reason. So I did pretty well and uh, was able to yeah earn a full scholarship, actually several scholarships because I was at, at the top of my class. Uh, so I earned a uh, a uh, full scholarship to the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, and was accepted into the pre-med program because I had always wanted to be a pediatrician. In my head, as a kid growing up uh, in South Sudan and seeing all my, like most of my childhood friends dying from, you know, like easily treatable diseases like cholera and typhoid fever and stuff. And I always thought, oh, you know, Someday I'm going to become a doctor and this is, you know, this was not, is never going to happen. So that was, that was the path I, you know, I was following out of high school. But when I visited uh, medicine, for some reason, I just didn't feel like, I didn't feel comfortable there. I, I felt like the school was too big. So I decided to actually go to UW Stevens Point, where you and I met. Uh, I'd already interviewed with uh, Scott West, who was the recruiter, and John and Patty. John and Patty Noel. Yes. At the time, they ran a ran a company called Travel Guard, and it had a program called the Compass Scholar Program, where they brought students of color to UWSP, provided them with a a scholarship and a paid internship. So that's that's the the John and Patty that you interviewed with, correct? Yes. Yes, and that's where you and I met. Yeah, because I was working for Travel Guard at the time, got involved in the Compass Scholar Program, and the rest, as they say, is history. Aliki, looking back, at one point you were happily eating mangoes in a tree in the Republic of Congo. The next moment you're sitting in a classroom in Stevens Point, a college classroom. Did you ever... St- have to just pinch yourself and say, you know, how did this ever happen? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, in that there are not too many people who are as fortunate to be able to, a lot of my childhood, you know, friends did not survive and, you know, did not get the kind of opportunity, you know, that I got to, to escape all those, you know, treacherous conditions. So yes, you know, I pinched myself time and time again. But then uh, the no part is a part of me had always known that I was going to not only survive that, but also come to the United States and go to school and live here. And part of it maybe was because my dad was already here. But, you know, a part of it was just, you know, I had a knowing like, yeah, I knew it would happen. Well, what a journey. And, and I want to mention, too, that we also met Kono at UWSP, and I think we, we're going to talk to him later. And he was also a part of the Compass Scholar Program. So a wonderful program, wonderful company, and what a great opportunity that uh, we all shared in Stevens Point. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back in a few moments with a very special guest. So stay with us. And in the meantime, enjoy this music by the incomparable... Kalanji Kadim.
Welcome back, everyone. We are super excited to have our very first guest on Black White, but mostly Gray. Welcome to the show, Kalonji Kadima, aka Kono. Hey, hey, guys! Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Uh, Kono Leaky and I are all graduates of the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. That's where we met a long, long time ago. Uh, Kono's now on the West Coast and is producing music, including all the bumper tunes for our podcast and. We couldn't be more thrilled, Kona. We're getting so many compliments on our tunes. It's really an integral part of the show. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing. I'm glad it's working out for you guys. Kono, you've been passionate about music for as long as I've known you. Um, can you describe your background and uh, Johnny in music production? How did you get started? Well, I've always been listening to music for my whole life, uh, you know, singing along and reciting vocal uh, lyrics and, uh, and just the overall vibe of music. I got I got started, uh, you know, in Stevens Point, you know, with some friends. Uh, Aliki, you, you probably remember Arnez, Jerry, and Eddie. Of course um, I do. Yes. So I, I I was in the Eddie's basement, and he had his program on his, on his computer called Fruity Loops. And I was fascinated by it, so I was like, you know what, let me let me try it out. So I asked him to, to show me a few things. And then I, I got on there, and I made my first uh, boom, 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 boom. And then from there, I had a light bulb moment. You know, like, like you know, those cartoons where you know they have a little, little bubble that comes 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 over their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have this. You know, like I, I had that moment in my head, and I kind of just saw my my future in music. You know, and I, at that point, I made it my mind that I'll be doing music for the rest of my life. I started on my computer and just hit the ground running from there. Uh, I started uh, buying books, uh, trying to that taught me how to use like different parts of music as far as EQing, panning, reverb, things like that. You know, j- just the basics to give me, uh, to, to make the right sound. And then uh, I, I just started doing it anytime I got some free time. Uh, I got an apartment, uh, I, set, I set up a home studio and was making beats all the time. I linked up with a few uh, local rappers playing basketball, recorded some of their, their songs. But oh, no. uh, For an old white guy, when you say making beats, What's the market for when you put all of this stuff together? You, you you know, you had your aha moment and then you started producing music. What type of music are you producing at this point in your life? Right now, I'm currently my main my main producing uh, genres are hip hop, uh, R&B and a, a little bit of EDM or techno or house music. But, but you're uh, not using musical instruments. You're using. I, I'm going to say a computer program, but you make music without instruments, correct? Well, so so it's, it's how how music is made nowadays. Along with with uh, with, with the instruments, we have these programs like, like the program I told you, Free Loops, where you can import a bunch of different sounds that that, that come from people uh, playing instruments or use different sounds from different things. Like you could use uh, something like a uh, like for, for for example, there's a song uh, uh, from a, a down south artist where in the, in the background of the beat is a it's a bed squeak. Like so they use that and added all kind of other sounds behind it to to make a beat. <laughs> and so Elite, we a, should use my chair squeaking to make a beat. Yes. <laughs> See? Oh, please don't. We can, we can. Trust yeah. me. Like music nowadays, you can use anything, any sound that you hear can can be turned or or used into into a beat. You've worked with quite a, a number of artists. Uh, how many would you say to date? Number wise, like in terms of your clientele, 
Um, I would say since 2013, I've worked with over 800 clients, and that's including uh, rappers, singers, uh, spoken word uh, artists, voiceover actors, you name it. Anyone that 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 pretty much wants to record something for themselves, they they, they come to me. And in, in in different genres too, like I mentioned before, hip hop, R and B, gospel, even gospel, uh, alternative rock. That was interesting. <laughs> rock, work, working yeah. with rock. I guess. Yeah. I guess going to UWSP and all those house parties. You know, we we, we were forced to listen to all of those kinds of songs. Exactly. That kind of helps, right. Exactly. No, but yeah. this was like heavy metal, hard rock. Like he came in and he was like, "Yeah, I got this rock in the room." He gets in the booth and and the the, the beat starts going like, and he's like, like I, was just, "I was like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go." Wow. So Kona, there was a point in your life where you were pursuing professional basketball. You were an IT professional. You were doing your music. I guess music has always been a big part of your life. But when when did you decide that it was going to be something that you wanted to make as uh, the primary focus of your career? Uh, I was I was with some guys here in San Diego, and uh, I, I, I guess he calls a group. And uh, we're we're making like a lot of buzz in the city, you know, with, with some of the like songs. The Back Street our... Boys? No. <laughs> were you like the Back Street Boys? Not quite. Not no. quite. Oh, okay. But um, oh, so so you know, we we're, we're we're making a lot of noise, and you know, and um, at the time, uh, I, I was still working, but the the company got bought off by a bigger company, and they gave us uh, they they laid off a bunch of people and, and gave us severance pay. So I had a, a nice bulk of. Uh, amount of money and i'm like you know what this is the perfect opportunity for me to open up my studio and, and stop working because we're about to get signed but i make a bunch of money with music and i don't have to worry about working at it anymore like yeah. my mama used to tell me mama. you know when a when a door closes a window open and your window open for you right yes yeah it, it was it was perfect timing because i had i had the funds behind me to to not be starving like a starving artist you know so i was able to do do, do certain things with it but after a while, you know, running my 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 studio and 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 doing music on the side, that wasn't bringing in enough money. I was spending way more than I, than I was coming in, you know. So I so I, I had to make a change after a while. Made a change after a while. What what does that mean? Well, I had to get back into the IT world. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go back to working full time. Had to keep going it's back. Nice to have a passion, but sometimes you need to put bread on the table, right? Exactly, but. But what I loved, I loved about that is that uh, I was able to establish my studio and get a full time job. So now I'm, I have like two two jobs, which is out here in San Diego. You you gotta have four or five jobs to be making right. it. Right, it's expensive down uh, down there. Yeah, I think we're we've known to be uh, the most expensive city in, in America now. No way, seriously, more than Miami and New York. That's that, that's what they're, they're they're saying on online. I don't know how true that is, but I don't know how they figure well, that it's out. It's on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so, where did you end up with the basketball career? Because you know you were doing that, you were juggling that as well, and that was that was your focus in in college. You know, I remember. Uh, I actually got the opportunity to play professional or semi-pro out here for for two teams for like for like three years until I broke my foot and that was pretty much the last straw because because I worked so hard to to to, to get in shape and at, at that point I was thirty five and, and it was funny was I was like I was the oldest player on the team <laughs> <laughs> living around but after that that injury I was like I don't I don't have 
I don't have the passion to, to work as hard as I did to, to get to the point where I, where I was. So I was like, you know what? Hang up the shoes. And I, I checked that off my, my bucket list. Hey, Kono, I love the music you produce for us, but I'm not sure how I would categorize it. Uh, what would you call the music that you produce for us? Well, it's a, it's like a, a mix of, of hip hop and, and, and R&B. Um, like a fusion. Yeah, I, I would. I would that's, that's a good name for it. Hip hop yeah. art be fusion because yeah. not nowadays. Hip-hop, Break that one down, Leaky. We'll use that one. All right. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. nowadays uh, hip hop is pretty much infused into into all all other genres, you know, because it's just like the biggest the biggest uh, genre in music right now. So, yeah, that, that's that's a good name for it. Hip hop, hip hop R and B fusion. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kono. Um, before we let you go, though, uh, do you have any advice for artists and would-be artists for getting started and uh, getting ahead in the music business? Buckle up and get ready for a ride because it's not <laughs> easy. There's a lot of ups and downs. I would say, you know, just keep working on your skills and whatever genre you're in because and, and, have, and can keep having fun doing it because that's the main reason that you started doing it. Uh, don't don't think that that they, you're you're gonna be the next Drake or next Beyonce because there's only one of them, you know. Just be yourself, be as creative as, as you can, and if you truly believe in your in your music, don't don't ever stop because once you stop, then you know the potential for you to, to actually make it uh, won't be there anymore. And also plan to have a budget because to get your foot in the door, you're gonna have to spend a lot of money just to get in front of somebody that can do something for you. Because those ballpark Connell ish man. And Danny, I, I, a lot. I, I can't. Uh, that. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I if if I give you a number, it, it's probably twice that number. Like if I say five five thousand a, a month or so, d- double that if you really want to make make an impact, or somehow just get lucky because there's artists that can nowadays can just buy all the programs, go, go in their room on their computer, record a song. And then put it out on Instagram or, or Facebook the next day and become an overnight sensation. Mm-hmm. But Kono, you've made music part of your life and you've figured a way to do it. And I think it's more about the passion, isn't it? Yes. The main thing is focus on the passion of doing it because the passion is, is, is going to make the audience come to you for it. You know, we, we have, uh, what's his name? Um, Lil Pump. <laughs> he, he had a song called Gucci Gang. And the artist and the, is called Little Punk? little pump like p-u-m-p oh, okay. I, got, I got it okay yeah and, and so the the hook to one of his singles is gucci gang gucci gang gucci gang gucci gang <laughs> could you but, say that slower for your old white guy audience what's he saying gucci gang gucci, gucci gang, gang gucci gang gucci gang okay cool all right and so that song it was catchy enough to catch the ears of of, of kanye west <laughs> what yes so they they actually did a uh, another song together. He he's somewhat of a a one hit wonder. Okay. There, but we're talking about him. Yeah, yeah that one song. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There, there's there's a lot of artists that that can make w- one song and, and blow up and, and become big and go viral, but they won't last long. You know, they'll have a, a, a short stint of, of popularity. I'm sure they'll, they'll make a lot of money doing it, but overall, Andy like, Warhol they, said they'll have their 15 minutes of fame. Exactly. Exactly. So tell us where we can uh, find your music out there. And you've had quite a few albums uh, released over the years, correct? I've only had three albums. I don't care about being in the spotlight. Like, 
being in the spotlight, like you know me, I'm 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 a bit of a shy person. So get, getting getting in, in in front of people, all, all all that kind of stuff is is cool. It's great. It's fun, but like that's it's it's nerve wracking every single time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I still love doing music and putting it out there. I, I don't want to be the star. You can find my music right now on on, on all platforms, pretty much Spotify, uh, Apple Music, YouTube, uh, SoundCloud, pretty much anywhere that where music is, is played. Uh, you you can find it on there. Thanks so much, Kono. Thanks for sharing. Uh, can't wait to hear what you come up for season two. Uh, right now, we're going to take a short break and listen to some of Kono's great tunes. All right, thanks, guys. Welcome back, everyone. We're so glad that Kono could join us. And for a couple of time zone challenged Tulsa Leaky, it was a miracle that we could coordinate a Pacific time, Eastern time, and Central time call, don't you think? Technology is just wonderful. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, to wrap up our first season, Dan and I are going to revisit a few of the loose ends from season one. Well, yeah, we're going to start with one of Aliki's favorite people, General Butt Naked. Now, if you missed out on episode one, General Butt Naked is a former Liberian rebel commander who was notorious for sacrificing children and charging in a battle while he was completely naked. And it must have worked because he, he's lived to tell about it. He's now trying to find redemption as an evangelical preacher who's trying to save ex-child soldiers from drugs. He was found by a Truth and Reconciliation Committee to be guilty, but they had no authority to punish him. Aliki, you're not so sure that you can forgive Preacher Joshua, a.k.a. General Butt Naked, right? Absolutely not. I mean, this guy, he's disgusting. As if the evangelical uh, movement is not having a rough time right now on the African continent. Now, this guy is over there. I shouldn't be so judgmental, but I, I can't help it. He's basically hiding under that all of that. I just think that he should be, he must and needs to answer for the atrocities he committed on all those children and, and all the the people, the 20,000 or more people that he killed. People can choose to forgive, you know, that's that's their own prerogative. But in terms of justice, this man needs to answer for all of the murders he committed. This is not the only person and monster, you might say, that has taken their atrocious things out on African women. It happens a lot. For instance, I mean, we have, we're still dealing. Remember when we were in New York City then, about 10 years ago or more, we we were out there protesting, you know, uh, regarding the Boko Haram uh, girls that that were kidnapped from their schools. That, that was like 75 or 100 of them. And, you know, it was like took like two years to get them back. And by the time they got them back, I, I can't remember the number of them, but a number of them, they've, they, they've never recovered, right? Yeah, a lot of them were pregnant. You know, many were, you know, like raped and tortured. And Boko Haram is still operating in northeastern Nigeria. It's a big human trafficking. They're, they're over there like impregnating all these young kids and 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 selling their babies. I mean, there's just all kinds of disgusting things going on. 
and nothing is happening. It just seems like whatever efforts are put in place, it's not stopping. And it's just outrageous that this continues to happen. You know, you look at things like, you know, female uh, genital mutilation in countries like uh, Somalia and Sudan. That stuff is still happening. In the last decade, over 90% of uh, of uh, female genital mutilation cases have come out of, of Somalia. It's still happening. They just, it's like African girls and women, you know, don't matter. And I know femicide and all, all kinds of things like this happen all over the world to women in general, but Africa is like at the top of that list. And it starts with the little, the little girls and it continues into womanhood. We need to let people like general butt naked, uh, we need to make it clear to them that they cannot do stuff like this and get away with it. That is why they should be prosecuted and he should be languishing in jail. And nobody should be buying books from him and forgiving him and doing all that. It's outrageous. Only in Africa does someone who has killed so many people get away. Remember when you said um, the reason they used their Truth and Reconciliation Committee was because the term for him getting persecuted had passed. Right. So so they just let him off like that? I mean... (laughs) On a technicality. On a technicality. I mean, the people, the Nazis who tortured and killed uh, Jews a long time ago, they're still being hunted down. They're still being hunted down and prosecuted. And here this man is just over there being a celebrity. That is outrageous. Yeah, it is. Before we move on, I do want to mention a man on the other extreme, on the other end of the spectrum, really, who is a true believer of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's Father Ubald Rugirano. But anyway, he was a Tutsi priest from Rwanda, and he lost most of his family and tens of thousands of parishioners. Uh, He escaped but returned to urge victims on both sides uh, to forgive, and it was a message really that resonated throughout the country and really throughout the world. If if you want to find out more, check out the TED Talk we posted on our Facebook page. Aliki, you'll put that on our Instagram page as well, right? I'll check that out. Yeah, I... Sadly, I've never read, read about this particular creature. I, yeah, I know. I kind of sprung them on you. Mm-hmm. So sorry about that. It's all right. You know, back in episode two, we talked about brand boycotts and what a slippery slope it is for brands these days. And we talked about how Chick-fil-A has been boycotted for being too Christian and anti-LGBT. And then recently boycotted because they're considered too woke by the right. Well, Aliki, good news. A conservative group called Consumer Research has come out with a new service that will text woke alerts straight to your phone uh, if you want to know what brands are being accused of taking political positions that are offensive to the right. That's just ridiculous. I mean, what what has this country come to? Seriously. But yeah, I mean, it seems uh, woke is a term whose meaning changes depending on uh, who you ask. I've heard it so many times from uh, co-workers, you know, people I met, you know, sometimes we get into political discussions here and there, but some conservatives are now using uh, the word woke as an insult against progressive values. And, And as I pointed out, the term was originally coined by Black Americans and used in racial justice movements in the early uh, to mid 1900s to describe, you know, people 
who are informed, educated, and conscious of social injustice and racial inequality. So what happened? Well, you know, I looked that up, as I always do when you say stuff that I've never heard before. And actually, you're right again, Aliki. From a conservative view, I think many conservatives use woke as a term for entirely different reasons, obviously, than, than those on the left. In their view, it's a negative word. It describes viewpoints and policy changes that they think would radically and negatively alter society. They're pretty much against things that they feel threaten family values. They think being woke is a negative thing because it describes someone who's taking things away from people based on race, opening up our borders and letting anybody in, defunding the police, you know, refusing to prosecute crimes. They definitely view woke as a negative term. How sad. You know, the liberal view, it's, it's it, as I already mentioned, is generally seen as a good thing. Woke is basically kind of a, a nod to like, yo, you, you know, knowing what's up. Uh, socially aware and and fighting for those who are underrepresented uh, by you know by our justice system, you know the idea that our laws and institutions uh, purport, purportedly uphold systemic inequality and justice based on race, uh, gender, and or sexual orientation. We all know it. It's not equal, you know, depending on who you are. So you know, people who are, are woke basically are aware of that. And so, you know, they they speak up and they, you know, support different reforms. So that is what woke is supposed to mean. The way that the conservatives have bastardized it is just kind of sad. And it and and clearly it is they're rebranding. You know, it's kind of like this whole, you know, and I'm trying not to get political, but you know, since you know Trump came into full view, you know, our society and those a lot of people, you know, in, in the US have been actively trying to redefine everything, including reality. A recent USA Today poll found that a majority of Americans are inclined to see the word woke as a positive attribute. 56% say the term means to be informed, educated, pretty much as you you had described. Mm -hmm. 39% say the word reflects what has become you know, the GOP political definition to be overly political, correct, and police others' words. And that's the view of 39% of Americans and 56% of Republicans. So it looks like if Republicans are going to, you know, play the woke card, they're going to have an uphill battle in the uh, upcoming election. But Mm -hmm. let's let's move on. You know, in episode four... Mm -hmm. You referred to the one drop rule, and that is if you have one drop of black blood, it makes you a black person in America. And Leaky, that's a uniquely American definition. Indeed it is. I guess it, 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 it dates all the way back to a 1662 Virginia law on the treatment of mixed race individuals. It has such that any person with even one ancestor of black ancestry is considered black in America, then? It's a little bit interesting in that it, it is uniquely American, and it really answers the nation's question, who is black? Because, you know, as we become more and more <laughs> of a mixed race society, how are you going to tell? And so 
this definition, the, the one drop, really reflects a long experience that we that we have in terms of making sure that uh, the races remained pure and that uh, someone mm-hmm. of a a slave background wasn't going to get the same rights as everyone else. Back in in those times, the black people were still not necessarily looked at as full human beings, right? They 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 were still what they counted as what three was it three fourths of of, it, of a human? It was state by state, and I think it was different in the south than it was in the north. But black people were not equal to to white people. That's really what the Jim Crow segregation rules were all about. Man, and and uh, I I gotta say I have never uh, known of in a society that just has so many different divisions. I, I know it's politically expedient, you know it's it's easy to pull people that way. It's easy to to divide and conquer. You know there, there are a lot of you know a lot of reasons uh, for the division. But boy oh boy, the the more you read into American history, it just sometimes seems very very ugly. As we mentioned, the one drop rule refers to, you know, Jim Crow laws passed during the South. But in an interesting twist, Halle Berry. Have you ever heard of Halle Berry? It's kind of one of my Yes, who hasn't heard of Halle Berry? <laughs> I guess the young people maybe. Yeah. Well, Halle Berry is a, you know, a very accomplished actress, very beautiful woman, and she's the daughter of a white mother who was a a nurse and a black father. She is in a war of words right now with her ex-partners, uh, a French actor named Gabriel Aubrey, about their daughter's racial identity. It's coming up in the court case. And she's she's pulling out the one drop in her defense and says that she supports it. I feel she's black. I'm black. I'm her mother. And I believe in the one drop theory. Which I think is a little interesting that you would use a rule that was used to disenfranchise African Americans in a custody battle to define your daughter's race. It got her what she wanted, correct? <laughs> I never followed up to see. Did she get custody? Yeah, I think she has custody she of the daughter. Yes, it's great that she used that 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 rule. Uh, I bet you Aubrey had no idea because I think he's French Canadian. But yeah, I mean, it, that's that's the reality. It doesn't matter uh, where this this daughter of theirs goes, they're going to see that, you know, she's got some black in them and 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 she's most likely going to identify as a black woman when she she gets older. So that's just the reality of being uh, in, you know, you know as as almost white as uh Halle Berry is, you know, she could probably just decide that she's not black. <laughs> it, it's it, it's just part of how we, how things work in the U.S. So I'm, well, I'm happy. I'm happy that she, you know, it worked for her. That it's actually being used for good uh, this time around. Before we move on, I just want to make the point that this is the second of our episodes where we've talked about Halle Berry, and if anyone has connections with her and she would like to be a guest on our show, we would <laughs> definitely welcome her to come on and talk about. You know, she could talk about the one drop rule. She can really talk about um, colorism. She could talk about anything she wants. So just ever reach out to us. Uh, our contact information's on the website. Then I'll give it up. I don't think Hallie. You don't think Hallie's coming? <laughs> I don't think Hallie's coming to our, our podcast. But okay. yeah, All that right. was a nice plug, though. We got Kono to come. We did. We did. You know, right. Kono, Halle Berry, you know, I don't know. 
okay. <laughs> well, you know, we got a lot of feedback on episode six, the battle of the sexes. Mm. And while there's much that we share in common, I'm talking about the two genders, the binary genders. There's no doubt that men and women are different. And I say viva la difference. You got that right, Dano. I love being a woman. You know, I'm I'm okay with being a guy. You know, I... <laughs> yeah. So the younger generations, uh, they want to do away with gender completely. That should be interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even going to delve into that right now. But I did come across an article in Forbes, and it's titled Seven Ways That Men Can Support Women as Allies. So I'm going to rattle them off, and you give me a yay or nay, right? Okay. All right, number one. This is a number one uh, in the list of six things men can do to support their women as allies. Give them due credit for their contributions. What do you think? Definitely a yay. All right. Listen to them and don't make assumptions. That is very, very important because, man, oh boy, the reason we have a lot of misunderstandings uh, between us sometimes is because of assumptions. Never make assumptions. Uh, number but, three. Yeah. So never make assumptions. Never make Well, I mean, listen to them is pretty important too, right? Exactly. All right. Call out sexism or inequality rather than just sitting there being a innocent bystander, apathetic bystander, not so much innocent. If you just stand there, you're, you're, you're not innocent bystander. <laughs> that's a, that's a big yay. And, and that kind of goes back to something I'm, I mentioned in that episode where I said, I, I think it, it, it makes no sense enough for, well, not, it doesn't make sense, but I think it's rather redundant for a woman, you know, to pronounce herself, uh, as a feminist, only because we already know. I mean, why would anybody go against what's good for them? I think if you're you're born a woman, you know, you're gonna want what's best for you. I would assume that, right? Of course, I just said never make assumptions. But so I think the people who would actually make the big difference and the people who need to be feminist are men. They're the ones who need to call out sexism uh, on their fellow men when they see it. All right, and here's a good one. I think. Thoughts about this have changed radically in the post-Me Too generation. Be conscious of a woman's need for space and understand it's inappropriate to hug or touch her without her permission. Big yay. And this is one of the things I love about uh, living in the United States because growing up in Uganda, oh my God. I mean, the way you know women were groped over there, I mean, I, I, I saw it as a young girl, you know, with my aunties and the cousins, you know, the, the older ladies dealing with that kind of stuff. You'll just be walking to the market and you see these, these men come in and just touching their breasts, groping their butts, just disgusting. Some men take women being friendly as kind of like an open invitation to doing appropriate things. So, yes, this is a big yay. All right. Number five. Share parenting and household chores. That's a, a big yes, yes, yes. And I have seen a lot of men in this country actually sharing parenting and household chores. It's very rare uh, where the men are just kind of sitting around and not helping with anything. So I'm part of that generation. My parents, very defined roles. You know, my mom did the house. My dad went to work. And then my generation, my wife worked, I worked. 
probably not sharing as much as the current generation uh, who I think are doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah. In, thanks. Not, not in every case and, and you're never going to get in every case, but I, I do think the expectations are different now and continue to evolve in that area. Yeah. Even in Uganda, when I visited a couple of years ago, I saw a lot of uh, changes, but and a lot of Uganda, Uganda boys are taught to do those things. But then you have, you know, the ugly Patrick, he raises it, his head every now and then. They're like, oh, this is a woman's job or whatever. But I do understand a division of labor. Uh, both spouses are working and things like that. And then, you, you know, you got to split them up. Yep. All right. Number six. This one's not too uh, radical. Advocate for women and champion policy recommendations that reduce gender inequality. Very big yes. You know, that goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, my idea that, you know, men should really be the feminists, not women. We need we need them to change things on our behalf. Right. I mean, I think you look at this whole list and it's nothing too radical. No. Pretty much sounds like the way any person would want others to treat him or her, right? Exactly. Exactly. Hey, before we move on, we do have to revisit the toilet seat controversy. Oh, boy. Seriously, one of our listeners wrote in a very intriguing question, and it's this. Is it more inconsiderate of a man not to put down the toilet seat or a woman not to raise it up a leaky? Oh, my God. Which one of your friends asked this question? I want to know. You know, I, I don't think that thought ever crossed the mind of a woman. I should raise this up so when my, my man comes in to pee, he doesn't have to do it. Nor should it. Well, then, <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for this episode and for season one. We want to thank Kalanji Kadima for joining us and producing our fabulous music. We want to thank all our listeners who have watched us give birth to this show. We'll be back soon for season two and hope you'll join us as well. Until then, please keep an open mind and a kind heart. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>